Hello and welcome to Peach Pot, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I'm your host and as always I'm joined by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you? I'm doing great, Kyle. How are you? I am very hot and tired and sunburned because Luke and I are in the same place again. We just got off the river uh, just outside of Athens going down the river today and so we are, you're getting a, a sleepy version of Peach Pod today. Um, but to, on today's show, we are going to cover, we're going to take a first look at the governor's race now that things have sort of started to happen. The candidates are getting out there on the trail. Fundraising totals are out. Seeing a lot of press about the candidates uh, in the Atlanta paper and in papers across the state as the candidates start to travel. So instead of the, the preview that we've done in the past, we're going to take a look at some of the early things that are happening and how that sets the stage for this race as it moves forward. Um, so that's going to be just our, our big topic for the day. Um, but we're going to start with some in the news as we always do. So Luke, what did you see in the news that caught your eye this week? Well, since we're going to be having a pretty Georgia focused, uh, conversation today, I'm going to go to the national news for my in the news. And that is the fact that it looks like, uh, our good old found, you know, good old pal, Jeffrey Bogard sessions. The third is in trouble again. Um, he, um, Apparently, in the Washington Post, they saw they they've reported that uh, Jeff Sessions indeed did talk to Russian Ambassador Kislyak about the campaign. And why this is important is because you know Jeff Sessions originally was like, "Oh, I've never talked to any Russians ever about anything," and then he had to walk that back. Well, okay, I saw Kislyak a couple times during the campaign, but we totally didn't talk about the election. We talked about everything but the election. And now it looks like, oh, he did talk about the election with him. And so it's it's just making it a lot harder for this administration to not get in trouble about some of the things that's been going on with the Russia stuff. Because with this specific issue and what Sessions said, he was under oath in Congress when he said that he did not have any conversations with the Russians about the campaign. So that opens him up to perjury. So... Uh, we'll see what ends up happening to uh, Sessions. And this comes at a very bad time for him because a couple days before uh, this, uh, you know, this Washington Post article came out, um, Trump had to the New York Times said that he wouldn't have appointed Jeff Sessions to be attorney general at all if he had known he was going to recuse himself from the Russian investigation because uh, Trump considered that so unfair to him. And so, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sessions is kind of embattled on all sides. It couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> well, I mean, this is this issue does seem to or is starting to feel a little more serious because of the stuff that came out about Donald Trump Jr. and in his meeting and how that looked to be very clearly an effort by the Russian government to influence the outcome of the election. Um, I'm sure people have seen reporting on that since that's come out. But like, I don't know. It just it this scandal has sort of sat there as background noise in this administration so far. And so at times I've discounted its meaning, but some of the details that are starting to come out now feel a little more serious. And I was just reminded that, you know, the Watergate issue, it wasn't something that disappeared and like went and happened. And then Nixon resigned in like six weeks. This was over a, I think over like a year and a half. Right? Oh yeah, well over a year and a half. So um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately for everybody, the Russia stuff is not going away ever. And every time it feels like it does, we have something like this pop up. Because even with the Don Jr. thing, there was a reporter that was following that story who kind of been aware of that meeting and trying to get the details about it ever since it happened. And you know, he was kind of flabbergasted when Don Jr. just tweeted out everything that he had like been following around like a conspiracy theorist for over a year so yeah i mean this this roller coaster ride isn't even close to done yet i loved that tweet from that reporter when he was like i've been following the story for a year and and he just he just tweeted it out he just tweeted it out it was a great tweet um the other thing that is <laughs> doesn't seem to be going away despite my proclamation that it was going to go away i told you kyle mostly because i want it to go away um, is the Senate's quest to repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, as we talked about in our last episode, the last-ditch effort in the Senate where Mitch McConnell is either trying to decide between 
giving the Senate a repeal only or a repeal and replace bill. Um, that is an effort that has not disappeared yet. There's probably going to be a vote early this week. But the interesting thing right now is that senators at the end of last week did not come to a conclusion on what they were actually going to vote on next week. There's two bills bills on the table. It's still one just a straight up repeal and delay, uh, which isn't something that actually can happen technically because of how health insurance markets work. And then the some version of the repeal bill that they've been talking about in the Senate. Um, so just I don't think to, they know what they're voting on. Like, yeah, I don't like think Susan Collins, knows. I saw like had a couple quotes. It's like, yeah, I'm not really sure what, what's going on. Isn't that all a mute, moot point, though? Because, like, with John McCain being out because of his uh, diagnosis of brain cancer, like, isn't it pretty much a given that they're not going to have enough votes for whatever they want to do? I think so. I mean, Susan Collins has been a, a pretty steady holdout for much of this process because the things that she wants to see change, particularly changes in the Medicaid program and the, and the cuts the Senate is considering, they those haven't happened at all. And she's continued to say since the beginning – or, or since really they've the Medicaid cuts were solidly put in the bill and weren't going to move, that she was a no vote. So you only need one more in that case to sink the bill. And Rand's been a pretty solid no. Yeah, the Rand is Rand seems to be because he's opposing it from the conservative side and not the moderate side. It seems to me that he could ultimately accept eighty percent of a loaf and and vote for this thing if his vote was the last vote needed for it. But he's also a big proponent of the repeal only option um, because it is the closest thing the Senate has on the table right now to an outright Obamacare repeal. So I don't know. There's potentially some strategizing there on his part. He may still be trying to push this bill further to the right. But the further right it goes, the more you lose moderates, as we talked about before. So um, just really put that back on everyone's radar. That is still something that may hopefully end next week. I still don't think they're going to be successful, but, um, you know, if, I mean, if this, this is, is you're following the, the cancer on the presidency is the Russia stuff and the cancer on Congress is healthcare. Yeah. And, and both of these issues have stopped the Republican agenda in its tracks. So, um, that'll be something to look out for next week after you listen to the show. Um, so with that, we'll get to our, our big topic of the week, which is just taking an early look at the governor's race. Um, so there's a few storylines starting to emerge between candidates within each party's primary. Um, as you know, on the Republican side, you have Casey Cagle, Brian Kemp, Hunter Hill, and Michael Williams. And on the Democratic side, we have Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans. Um, so let's start with the Republicans. I think the Republicans have seen the most interesting and most bizarre moment of the early stages of this primary, which was a press conference that was brought together by Republican candidate Michael Williams. Uh, Michael Williams seems to be interested in running in the Trump lane in this primary, trying to re-energize and, and recreate that that primary win for Donald Trump in Georgia and even the general election win um, by activating those kind of voters on the Republican side. So Williams sent out a press release and encouraged both his supporters and the media to come to the state Capitol for a press conference where he was going to detail the reprehensible actions of Lieutenant Governor Casey Cagle. And at this press conference, he called on Cagle to drop out of the race because Cagle, he alleged, Williams alleged, had a role in stopping legislation that Williams had introduced that had to do with increasing pay for police officers. And this, what seems to me a fairly standard uh, political move within the legislature, I mean, these things happen all the time for, for various reasons. Um, this was the thing that Keg that uh, Williams laid out is so reprehensible that Cagle needed to drop out and that this is sort of the animating feature of Michael Williams' campaign is this fight against the establishment. Um, but at this press conference, Williams was asked by a few reporters, including Greg Bluestein at the AJC, if he could show any proof or provide any information that would solidify these claims that Williams was making. And this was a press conference Williams convened to tell that story and to lay out there why these things that Cagle had supposedly done were so reprehensible. And he gets this question from Greg Bluestein. And then he's like, I'm not prepared to provide that today. <laughs> like, this was... This was uh, your idea. Yeah. 
you brought us here. And it, it's really great because if you watch the video of the press conference, he looks right at Greg and he just grins a little bit when he gets the question because he knows. I mean, he had to know this question was coming. It was the only question that he should have expected. Yeah. Um, and it was really the only question he got. He got like three different versions of the same question from a few different reporters. So that was early in the week a couple of weeks ago, right? That was late in the week a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then this last week, Casey Cagle announced that he had over 60 endorsements from uh, police officers, police like county level police chiefs across the state, which seemed to me to be a, a direct refutation of the claim Williams was making. I mean, Williams is trying to make it clear that not only does Cagle run a shady Senate, but he also uh, doesn't care about police officers because the bills that he stopped in the state Senate were about police officers and, and police officer pay. And then Cagle turns around and can announce the endorsement of, of 60 police chiefs across the state. So Luke, what do you think Williams is trying to accomplish here? And did he just kind of fall flat on his face and what was supposed to be one of the first big moments of his challenge to the Republican establishment? I mean, I think he's trying to follow a very poorly executed LBJ strategy of make him deny it and that he was probably hoping that he would make some wild accusations against Casey Cagle and then Casey Cagle would have to deny those accusations. And so it seems like it didn't really work out. I think a lot of it has to do with the poor execution of it. And then also bills live and die for lots of different reasons. And so it's pretty hard to know exactly why Michael Williams bill wasn't successful or not. And even if Cagle was the one behind stopping it there's no guarantee that the reason why was salacious yeah this just strikes me as odd one of the things that i've noticed early in williams campaign i've looked at a couple of youtube videos of him at other events like at a, at a gwinnett county republicans meeting and he gave this like really standard stump speech with like a really sort of nice story about when he was a kid one of his first run-ins with government was that uh the school that he was at as a kid stopped him from selling like Cokes and candies to other people in his class. And he told this story and said, this was his first uh, brush with government regulation and, and how it stifles business growth and all of this. And, and a lot of his other branding or sort of the way that he frames himself as a care as a candidate that cares about the issues. He wants to talk about the issues first and he comes off as sort of like this very mild-mannered, polite businessman when he is not very specifically trying to run in the Trump lane. Because there's the other thing that he did, which was say that Democrats should be held responsible for a couple of crimes that were committed by undocumented immigrants and that Democrats hold some responsibility because they support immigration policies that are not tough enough on undocumented immigrants. But like, even in this press conference, he's not when he's giving this speech at the press conference, he's not like raging in the way that Donald Trump used to rage on the stump. He's I mean, quiet. I think he this seemed is, nervous to I me. I think this is far less complicated than you think. And it's just like the Duke has some really bad consultants and they're all like, Oh, look at that Trump guy. He went out there and yelled and made wild accusations and was able to, you know, sink the, you know, predetermined nominee and the presumptive president, next president by having this really aggressive style and it sounds like, you know, I don't know Michael Williams, but it just sounds like uh, this does not really fit his personality or his record. And so it's a lot harder for him to impersonate Trump. And, you know, I've seen a lot of the public statements that you're just talking about, especially the, you know, the Gwinnett case. Um, and it's just, you know, it's not, it seems very artificial. It seems like someone trying to copy Trump that isn't actually Trump. And I, I really don't have a lot of faith that it's going to be a very successful strategy because it's not really based in his political record. And I'm sure we're going to get to this a little bit later, but like Brian Kemp has tried some of this too. And it's gone a little bit better for him since it's actually sort of, you know, marinating in his actual political record. Whereas like Michael Williams just kind of seems like a, your run of the mill state senator. Yeah, I mean, Kemp, to talk about Kemp a little bit, um, and we can transition a little bit here, 
from Williams to Kemp because Kemp has made headlines in his ongoing feud with Stacey Abrams over issues around voting um, and, and the ongoing feud that goes back to the 2014 midterms and, and the registration drive that Stacey Abrams sponsored and, and helped raise money for. And then this all of the legal fallout related to... Well, I mean, you know, she, she ran the New Georgia Project. So it wasn't just something that she was supporting. It was something that she very actively was a part of. Yeah. And, and I think the important thing is, too, because this is something I was thinking about when I knew we were going to be talking about this, is like, it's actually pretty interesting because Brian Kemp has gotten national press in a way that, like, Casey Cagle hasn't from this fight that he's had with Abrams. And so in some ways it's, it's really raised his profile in a way that hasn't happened with Cagle yet. And so I think that's a pretty interesting dynamic in this early race is that I would argue that Brian Kemp has a much larger national profile than Casey Cagle does. Cause now in my opinion, most of the time it's negative, but like in a lot of the stories about secretary of state knowing or not knowing about, a uh, potential voter fraud or knowing about um, Russian attempts and meddling in the election. Brian Kemp is always the stalwart, oh, nothing happened here guy. And like almost all of his quotes are along the lines of like, oh, we don't really need to worry about this. Well, he also, I mean, t- to go back to the comparison with Williams, he also seems a lot more aggressive in his opinion about these things. So like he is him and Stacey Abrams are like actively fighting in the press about this. Yes. And picking fights with people is sort of what made Trump so effective and what allowed him to come off as so genuine to other people because in, you know, compared to the political correctness that, that he was so critical of Trump was willing to say anything and everything and not care what anybody thought about it. And Williams doesn't seem to be Williams seems to be picking artificial fights that nobody on the other side wants to fight with him about. Whereas Kemp has these fights that Abrams is actively fighting back on. I mean, when, when Abrams was in Athens for her, for a campaign event, she talked about how Brian Kemp, uh, for him, voter suppression is a way of life. And, and this is the big divide that like, if, if these two end up being the general election candidates, um, a, we're never going to hear the end of this. This is the whole race is going to be about this. But um, they are upset at each other in the press. They're willing to fight with each other, and at least at this point, Kemp and Abrams don't seem to be paying much attention to their primary opponents within their own party. They're already looking at each other and firing shots in the media. Um, well, I mean, it's other. a four-year-long fight that has really been politically beneficial for both of them because even when they weren't running for governor, they both got a lot of attention for uh, being on you know both sides of this fight. Brian Kemp got a lot of positive attention in Republican circles for keeping Democrats from voguing, uh, and Abrams got a lot of support in Democratic circles for trying to help more Democrats vote. So, you know, this is not going away. And it's being a useful tool for both candidates in building their profile, both in the state and nationally. So, I mean, I'm just not surprised that they're focusing on it and that it has been effective for them because it has been a issue that has not gone away after four years. And it's something that is pretty straightforward, you know, and kind of came to a legal resolution. So it's interesting that it has maintained its viability as a, political argument and i just want to re-up my criticism that i i get frustrated that this is a political argument i mean i i feel like whoever is ultimately the secretary of state particularly after kemp leaves office and, and a new one is brought on after the 2018 elections that hopefully the issue of voting will become a less political one. Now I understand both sides would probably say, you know, Stacey Abrams would probably say that the practices coming out of the secretary of state's office really do have an impact on people's ability to vote. And so this is not just making political hay of something. This is fighting for a constitutional right that she feels. And a lot of people on her side of this issue feel is being taken away by an aggressive secretary of state. Um, Whereas Kemp would say that, a lot of these groups that have filed lawsuits, some of which have not ended in the challenger's favor, 
some of which have ended in, in favor of Brian Kemp, that, that a lot of these outside groups are just trying to stir up a lot of trouble in the press about Kemp and create this reputation about him um, and, and are using voting as that issue and these frivolous lawsuits that, that he would probably say are happening. Um, those things in, in and of themselves are a threat to Georgia's ability to effectively and securely run elections. Um, so there, there, there is a real issue there, but the thing that bugs me is that the reason that they are talking about this and not something else is because this is politically advantageous to both of them right now. Um, and I don't like the fact that a basic core function of democracy is being used to score political points on both sides. Yeah, but I mean, that's not unique to Georgia. It's not like this isn't happening everywhere. No, and, and the other piece of that is if Stacey Abrams was making this argument in North Carolina where a Supreme Court decision said that um, that the North Carolina legislature was targeting African-American voters with almost surgical precision in their attempt to keep them from coming to the polls, then, then yeah, there's a lot more substance there. But I mean, that, there's is, a lot more that is happening in Georgia just because it hasn't made its way through the court system yet doesn't mean it's not happening. Well, because even this last this last cycle, they were trying to do a mid, you know, mid census redistricting that was very clearly. Let's just throw all the African-Americans into one district so that a couple white Republicans can hold on. So, I mean, it's very in the issue of voting, though. It, I don't. Th- I think it's connected because it's just it's an entire culture that the Republican Party has nationwide that is about finding any way possible to diminish the political power of Democrats, which, due to the coalition that's currently Democrats, a lot of times means minority voters. Yeah. No. And I understand that there's substance there. I just wish that they would pick a different substantive issue to to gripe about. <laughs> Well, I mean, it's it's important, though, because right now there's in Georgia and North Carolina, a lot of places. I mean, the reason why Republicans have control over the legislatures is because of the fact that they are using these practices. And so even if a large majority of the state of Georgia agree with Stacey Abrams or Democrats in general about what the path of the state should be, that doesn't matter under the current system because they won't be able to win because so many voters are disenfranchised either from voting or from voting in a district that would actually make a difference to the political composition of the state. So yeah, is it, is it annoying that we have to talk about this? Yeah, it's really annoying. I'd much rather talk about what policy I'd rather be doing, but the policy conversation kind of becomes a moot point if it doesn't matter if you convince enough voters because they're all in districts that are uncompetitive. Yeah, I'm. I gripe a little bit more. That is that to me is a more substantive policy issue. I gripe a little bit more about motive. I think is the issue. It's like I, I mean I understand that, and it's I, difficult. I can, I can buy into that. It's difficult to prove motive, so that makes it really hard. But it's like because there is some ambiguity in the ability to prove motive, both sides can take advantage of that to make their case and they can say, well, the other person is the bad guy. And that plays into a lot of our issues with polarization now where we, you know, Democrats and Republicans think people of the other party are like bad, terrible people, or they hold bad, terrible beliefs. And that to me is sort of more damaging in the long term. They're like, that is the, the part to me that is really damaging about polarization because we are splitting in a way, not just, in the politicians we like or in the policies we prefer, but actually believing that the other side is intending to harm people. And there's a lot of examples of that. You know, when you talk about the healthcare bill, you can look at studies that say people who don't have access to health insurance will die. And, you know, I don't like elevating that point because I don't want to sit here and say, oh, well, this Republican who supports this health care bill, he may as well be no different than a murderer because he's passing policies that are going to kill people. Regardless of whether or not that's true in a substantive way, the fact that that's where our argument is and the fact that we are dividing so starkly along those lines is, is troubling to me. And the fact that we use voting in this way, some core piece of our democracy 
and then we try to convince people that the other side is evil because of how they feel about voting. That to me is just troubling. And um, well, tell the other side to stop disenfranchising voters, and they'll be a lot easier to stop talking about it. (laughs) I wish everybody would listen to me. I wish they would let me referee these fights. To transition a little bit to the fight that that really hasn't happened yet between the two Democrats, between the two Stacys, but the fight that is sort of a proxy war in the media between different sides of this. Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans are currently divided in the way that they either believe or are perceived to believe is the best way to elevate the chances for Democratic success in the state of Georgia. Um, Stacey Abrams has been very clear when she was responding to Roy Barnes' early endorsement of Stacey Evans that it was not 1998 anymore and that the coalition of like moderate, somewhat conservative rural Democrats, along with African-Americans that elected Governor Barnes in 1998, um, that that coalition doesn't really exist anymore. And so her belief and what she's put a lot of her effort into politically and, and in her career um, is registering and engaging with minority voters and that that is the key to success for the Democratic Party moving forward. And then on the other side of that, you have Stacey Evans. And and I feel that this putting Evans in this position, this has actually been thrust more upon her than she's kind of taken it up at this point. But her case that is sort of made when you're talking about her candidacy is that she is someone who may be able to appeal to those old blue dog Democrats or moderate, maybe even a little bit conservative Democrats in rural areas that are largely in the, the groups of these people are largely white. Um, and, and that is more reflective of the coalition that elected Roy Barnes and, and Democrats in the eighties and nineties in Georgia. So Luke, what do you think about this divide right now in the issue of Stacey Abrams is clearly pushing her point on one side and the other side of this seems to just be applied to Stacey Evans. Is that problematic or is that just a little bit to do with the fact that so far Stacey Evans is a little quieter I mean, on the campaign trail? I think there's so little that's happened between the two Stacys right now that I agree with your characterization of what's going on. But I think in a couple months when we talk about this again, because I'm sure we're going to be talking about this a lot, that we're going to have a little bit of a different opinion. Because like right now, yeah, Evans' campaign has been a little sleepy. Um, I'm sure that's because they're probably focused on trying to raise money and have enough of a uh, windfall that they can have a decent staff to start putting out what their message is. Because right now, really, the only thing we've heard from the Evans campaign is that really great ad that she did of 17 homes, I think it was. The name Six, of, 16, 16, 16, 16 houses. Yeah. 16 houses, my bad, yeah. And if you haven't seen that ad, it, I mean, it's really great. Even if you're not a Democrat, just like sitting down to watch this ad, like it's very well done, very well made. And what I think it is, is that Abrams's camp is playing a very aggressive defense that they're trying to pigeonhole the Evans campaign as a, oh, look, it's Roy Barnes again. Oh, look, it's another, you know, attempt to bring back a coalition that hasn't existed in the state for a very, very long time so that that's what people think about the Evans campaign. I actually don't know what the Evans campaign plan is because they haven't really started to articulate it to the, you know, electorate as a whole. So I think really... I find it interesting that Abrams has spent so much time and effort to push back against like Roy Barnes endorsing Evans, because to me it seemed like a really defensive move because in a lot of ways, everyone who is in democratic politics at all kind of knew this is what Abrams was going to do. I mean, back in 2014, even like before Jason Carter had gotten the nomination to be the gubernatorial candidate, I had heard from some people that Abrams was considering running in four years, assuming that Carter's campaign didn't work out. So like for the fact that like I could figure that out and find that out, it's not surprising to me that like this, this campaigns happened. So I say all that to say that, it's really interesting if you watch like the money, if you watch the endorsements, Abrams has gotten a lot of support from outside the state and almost everyone inside the state is supporting Evans. 
And so I think that is the real narrative that Abrams is trying to combat by this, in that saying that all of the Democrats in state have a backwards view of how to win the state and that she's going to be pushing the state forward with her idea about how do you how you win Georgia again and that, you know, the old Democratic Guard, which pretty clearly seems to support Evans, is out of date and, you know, needs to move along and Abrams has a new idea of how you become a successful statewide candidate in Georgia. So I that's my guess of where this is coming from. Um if you ask me, it's way too early because I think Evans really hasn't had a chance to make her argument for like why she's running against Abrams. And I think she's being defined by Abrams' campaign right now. So it'll be interesting to see if she, there's some significant pushback from her team or not on that. Well, and to be fair to Evans, too, she I think was she the last candidate to... She's the newest Inter- candidate into the race. I mean, Abrams had about a month on her, I think. If and- you count, isn't that if you count Abrams, if you consider her campaign started when she said she was exploring, but if like you said, and if I she's, count, I yeah. count that we knew she was running. Yeah. Come on. Yeah, That's I some can- Jeb Bush. I'm testing the waters of testing the waters. Crap. Yeah. Um, but I, I think the fundraising point is interesting and, and it's worth noting that on the democratic side, on the fundraising, um, Abrams did outraise Evans by a little bit in this first reporting period. Stacey Abrams raised $474,000. Evans raised $391,000. The interesting thing about that to me, though, is that as of right now, Abrams is Abrams did not blow Evans out of the water in this first reporting period, especially given that Evans got in this race so late. And part and, of the and real quick on that, I want I want to hit on that because. Right before this announcement came out of like how much the campaigns had raised, I mean, some you know Democratic operatives that I pay attention to and trust were saying that like if Abrams didn't raise like over a million dollars, she was in real deep trouble, and she you know she just barely raised half of that. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's it's not insignificant. Like I I really really think it's pretty significant to to see that Abrams did not like match some of the lower tier Republican candidates. Cause I think even Michael Williams, who we were hitting on earlier for how like convoluted and weird his campaign has been so far, he outraised her significantly. I think he at least got like 800,000. No, yeah. that's no. Um, he donated a million or loaned. Oh. He loaned a million dollars to his own campaign. Okay. Williams fundraising is struggling in the first reporting period. He raised $51,000. Ah, okay. But so I, I just saw the top line figure and got confused then. I, I presume though that he probably was not investing any time or effort knowing that at least as of right now he um because i think he has a good bit of money from, from <laughs> it business seems ventures. that way yeah if he can if he can loan his campaign a million dollars but i i would imagine that he had focused more on messaging and and getting this trump line out there whereas some of the other candidates are focusing on the fundraising but but yeah but to that point though and to the reason that abrams might be really aggressive in in pushing back on like the Roy Barnes endorsement. Um, In addition to the fact that Abrams just kind of hit the ground running in this campaign, she really did struggle a little bit with fundraising in the state. And as it was framed by, I can't remember if it was Bluestein or Galloway in the AJC, but the, the Barnes, the value of the Barnes endorsement is to activate his fundraising network in support of Stacey Evans, which is not insignificant. And that is, this is a zero sum game in the state. That is a loss for Stacey Abrams. Yeah. And what might be an early concern if you're on, if you're in the Abrams camp is that Abrams fundraising strategy seems to be to activate groups outside of the state. So she's gotten a lot of good press in very liberal blogs around the country. And there's a lot of, buzz around her potential to be the first African-American governor of any state in the country. And these, you know, these qualities about her and her candidacy are the kinds of things that should activate your most active progressive donors around the country. And we saw in the John Ossoff race that those people really came out for John Ossoff. I think his final fundraising total came out earlier this week and it was like over $30 million for a congressional race. And so that begs the question of, to some extent, might progressive national donors be tapped out a little bit or maybe not enthusiastic to get out there and start donating again because the special elections that 
did attract some attention, particularly the Ossoff race ended in disappointing fashion. Um, and this is a, this is an early, this is like super, super early in the governor's race. So like, this is not a visible resistance of the Trump administration moment yet. And the other thing is, is that Abrams has a democratic opponent. I mean, yes, Ossoff did earlier in the race, but like they weren't serious. I don't remember any of their names. Yeah, like they weren't slogan. Apologies to them. But. Slogan, Ron Slogan, that was one. But anyway, yeah. like none of them were super serious candidates. And so um, it was pretty easy for the national groups to be like, yeah, that's our guy. But in the, you know, Stacey v. Stacey situation, a lot of what I've seen is that very early in the race, there's a bunch of organizations that came out for Abrams. But then sort of after that is a lot of tepid like, oh, oh, there's actually a primary and they're both serious. And, you know, we got to take these both of these candidates into consideration. And well, this you know, was this was when national press actually started coming to the state and talking to people in the state and not just taking the words of Steve Phillips and Joan Walsh in national liberal blogs. Right. And I, and I think that's part of the issue is that there is a lot more state context. There's a, there's a much bigger story in terms of the way both in good ways and and in not good ways that Abrams has run the house democratic caucus and the democratic party and the state. Um, And those are issues that, you know, a primary, the purpose of a primary is to iron those things out between the two candidates. Um, and so, so that stuff is starting to bubble up a little bit, but yeah, it is a primary and it's not as of right now, you know, John Ossoff got the, you know, the new hope he's, he's our only hope branding as, as the resistor to Trump. And, and that's not something that's helped Abrams yet. Um, because this is not, at least in my opinion, this is not a super visible resistance moment as of yet. Um, but I think with that, we'll uh, get to our, our last little piece of this update on the governor's race. So there is actually some interesting policy discussion going on. Um, so the state Senate has a study committee where they are looking at reviewing tax credits that are given to businesses or corporations that are really what has been one of the primary economic development tools that Governor Nathan Deal and the legislature have used since the Great Recession. Um, there is one of these that is very visible and and seems to be pretty successful, the, the film tax credit that has really brought, really blown up a film industry in Georgia where there wasn't really one in the past. Um, but Georgia uses these these tax credits as economic development tools in a lot of other areas. Earlier this year on the show, we talked about a tax credit that was given, that was passed through the legislature for people who get their yachts repaired in the state of Georgia. And that is, you know, you can criticize it for being about fancy people and rich people and their yachts, but this is actually part of the economic development strategy. Uh, but what the state Senate committee is doing is they are looking at how to review those tax credits to try to assess whether or not they are actually effective in, in improving economic development, creating jobs in the state. And this is something that is, that is long overdue in terms of a policy issue. It's something that, you know, we, we spend a lot of money on these credits every year and it's, we aren't really clear what we get for them. But I, I tweeted a little bit about this, earlier last week, this was, this is something that divides or something that's bubbled up already between Hunter Hill on the Republican side and Stacey Abrams on the Democratic side. Uh, Both Hill and Abrams have been critical of these tax breaks when Hill, who is actually on the state Senate committee while he's also running for governor, he said that he was a little more concerned with tax rates across the board and what your average Georgian's tax bill is over what, you know, specific corporations or or businesses get little tax breaks here and there and it sort of i would presume leads to a theory of economic development where if you lower tax rates across the board this would spur economic growth you know the sort of the more classic republican arguments for doing things like eliminating the state income tax which you know hunter hill's issue page says that he wants to do on the other side of this you have stacy abrams who talked about how in her appearance in athens she said you know, that tax credits like these just end up leading the state to steal other employers from other states like Indiana. And this brings low wage jobs into the state. And 
is not a uh, ineffective economic development tool. She actually quote tweeted me when I was talking about this and and said that the first priority should be small businesses with roots in the community who can hire people locally. Um, and then she also sort of alluded to, oh, and she also noted that a, a different strategy would be to give businesses within the state access to capital and and improve training for their workforce in a way that would, you know, it's, it's just a different idea about how you do economic development. So um, this is sort of one of the more wonky policy things that's starting to come up early in this race, but it is very indicative of different ideas about economic development that are probably consistent across the two parties. I mean, several candidates, I know both Williams and Hill want to eliminate the state income tax. Uh, Casey Cagle's top issue right now for him is to cut taxes by $100 million. Um, whereas, you know, Stacey Abrams has talked about economic development and, and growing an economy for everyone and not just, you know, the people who have benefited from the way the economy grows now. All right. So Luke, what do you think about, you know, the different beliefs between these two candidates and and the beliefs across the aisle on this uh, little economic development issue that is something that may actually be a wonky thing that gets debated when we get to the general election? Well, I think that's the question, isn't it? Is like, is this actually going to be an issue that survives the primary and or even this conversation between you and me and actually becomes something that they debate? Because, you know, back in... 2014, almost everything was about education funding because that's what Jason Carter really ran hard on. And so, you know, Deal was talking about QBE all the time and all this stuff with education they wanted to do. And it pretty much went nowhere. I mean, you know, like QBE is pretty much off the table from all appearances. And so I... And Jason Carter's idea never became law either, splitting the budget into an education budget and a, and a not. I mean, of course it didn't because he didn't win, but yeah. that's not an idea that anybody else ever picked up and is still continuing to run on either. Right. And like not, you know, no Democrats are talking about that idea. It pretty much lived and died in his campaign, but this issue is a little bit bigger. Um, I'll be curious to see what happens with it. Um, you know, cause generally, yeah, you know, most people I talk to consider the movie tax credits pretty successful, and they're pretty happy to see that Georgia Peach at the end of a lot of programs and a lot of movies. Um, but you know, as far as the bigger applications of it, like the yacht thing that we had to talk about so much during session, um, yeah, I'll be I'll be curious to see what happens because I think there's an argument on both sides that it can be effective. Um, I'll be really curious to see what Abrams campaign comes out with on her approach since she's so anti the tax credits. And, you know, I think that that'd be good to have a strong alternative to that approach. Um, I mean, the main thing is though, I am just continue to be amazed by anyone who would think that we should get rid of the income tax in Georgia because the, you know, aren't we the best state to do business in and the income tax hasn't gone the way of doing that. And the other States that have gotten rid of the income tax have a lot of problems in managing their budgets. And, you know, it's not like we have all this money that we're throwing around in our state budget that is free to go somewhere or to just disappear entirely. That's a lot harder to bring taxes back once you get rid of them. And you know, you know who else thinks that is a uh, governor Nathan deal. Cause that's the one thing that he has consistently said that he warns his uh, successor is to, you know, be careful with the taxes and not cut the state's revenues too much. So I think for all these campaigns, it's going to be interesting what ends up being the main narratives and the main policy conversation that happens because um, I, I think it's too early to really know what's going to be because we don't really know who the front runners are. Cause even, you know, even though Casey Cagle and Abrams are the like presumptive front runners, there really hasn't been great polling done. Like we don't know who's going to be the real leaguers in this race. So for all we know, uh, you know, Hunter Hill <laughs> might be the, you know, Republican nominee and Stacey Evans might be the Democrat nominee and the issues that they push are going to be very different because yeah. I'm going to say I'm going to say fake news. The The polling shows Michael Williams is winning 100 percent of the vote right now. Oh, of course. 110 yeah. percent. 
Yeah, but it's just like you because know, of Evans, Kemp's failure to stop voter fraud. But yeah, I mean, real real quick though, it's just like Evans is like super focused on hope. That's been a huge part of her record, and so like mm-hmm. if she ends up being the nominee, then like we're gonna hear a bunch of hope stuff. And if she's not, then we probably won't. We're gonna hear a lot of hope stuff in the primary too, right? Especially because, and this is a big issue, and we I don't think we've talked about it. Um, so it's important to point out is that you know back. Uh, early in Governor Deal's term when he made a bunch of changes to the Hope Scholarship, Abrams signed off on that and Evans did not. And we're going to need to do a kind of recap episode, I think, on that eventually. Yeah, we'll do too. that as a full topic. But the the short version of that is that Abram, Abrams would make the case that she felt like negotiating with Republicans could get a better deal for the Hope Scholarship in a way that if she and Democrats in the legislature did not participate and they just sort of were obstructionists and said no that then republicans would just go on and and make even worse changes on their own um but abrams was really elevated her and her profile was elevated in coordination with nathan deal or like you know as her and her proposals that were accepted and championed by nathan deal and republicans in the legislature um that is part of the reason that she has a platform and a record to run for governor on and so um, you know, that's going to be a big split and, and we'll dig into that issue more in another episode. But yeah, that's, we're going to hear a lot about that in the primary for sure. Yeah. I imagine that'll be in the end, the little bit that I have seen from Evan's campaign, you know, on Facebook and sponsored messages and stuff like that. And her initial announcement all mentioned hope. So yeah, it's going to be, be a big issue. And so looking forward to hearing, some forward thinking on the hope scholarship because even with jason carter's pretty heavy focus on education there wasn't a whole lot of like uh collegiate education ideas it was very much so focused on uh the very very important issue of getting the um qbe formula fully funded or and perhaps changed in some way so it'll be interesting to see uh you know what education ideas are being promoted just to, to wrap this up, as as we look forward to where this race is going, one of the things that I hope we get out of this debate that we haven't really seen in Georgia as a, in a long time is like really big, innovative ideas about how to solve the state's most challenging problems. I mean, there are a lot of ways that you can say that Governor Deal has done a pretty good job of managing the state. He took the helm of the state at a time of of great economic turmoil, and then he can look to a lot of things like the state's excellent bond rating, the fact that he surpassed his goal on the rainy day fund. I mean, there's a lot, particularly on fiscal issues, there's a lot of positives that he can point to. But in Georgia politics, we have not had an idea like the Hope Scholarship and how transformative that was in the early 90s when we were the first state to do that. We haven't had an idea like that in a long time. Probably since the Hope Scholarship. I think so. And and we've muddled through it and under under Deal's term, him and the legislature have not attacked and reform of the state's education funding formula. They while passing the tax increase that funds maintenance of our road system is a positive and a lot of Democrats supported that, um, we don't have a transformative idea of how to manage traffic and economic development in the future as the state continues to grow. I mean, we've, and also on healthcare, we have not solved the issue of what to do about access to healthcare in rural areas and, and how that relates to economic development in rural areas. I mean, the state- Well, you know, to interrupt you waxing poetic about why we can't we solve these big problems, the answer's actually right in front of us and pretty obvious, which is they would rather cut taxes and get rid of the income tax than- build a new road or fund healthcare or educate people. Well, and that, that is definitely our bias. I, I imagine a Republican would I say, I mean, what, what's Hunter Hill and Michael Williams talking about? They're talking about getting rid of the income tax. They're not talking about building new roads or funding the rural hospitals. That is their choice. That's not our bias. Well, I think Hunter, I didn't, I didn't make Michael Williams put, get rid of the income tax on his website. That's yeah. his decision. Well, and, and Hunter also says that we can, double the state's investment in transportation while also cutting the state income tax. It's an interesting issue to consider, but... And I'm the king of China. The Yeah, and, and that's something we'll dig into, but the, the I think the closing point I'd want to make is just that even if that is... 
you know, some Republicans might say that that's like a transformative idea and that we're not giving that its due. Um, I can think of a lot of policy reasons why that's not true, but and Kansas. Um, yeah, I mean, Kansas is number one and, and they, they did major tax cuts and, and did not see their economy explode in a way that, um, well, they, 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 they saw it explode just in the wrong direction. Yeah. Um, but the, the framing around cutting the, in, the, eliminating the state income tax is that this is a conservative, a good conservative reform that has been promised for years that hasn't gotten done. And you know, this is part of the issue of, of the way that Republicans argue tax policy is that I don't see like good evidence that this idea is a transformative idea in the way that Hope Scholarship changed the entire way that we think about higher education in the state of Georgia. And I think that's the issue is like the focus well, on that, tax policy. I, well, I see, I think you're wrong. Cause I think getting rid of the Georgia income tax would be transformative and in, incredibly destructive and foolhardy way. So well, I'm looking for, for inspirational and hopeful ideas in a positive direction, not a negative one. <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I just, I want to hear the argument from, from people. I want to see us, tackle big things and i hope that that's what we find in this campaign i don't feel like you really find those things in campaigns anymore i get frustrated by that but i hope that we're well the exception rather i I disagree that you can find them because i mean you know there's definitely some campaigns out there that i feel like have had pretty big transformable you know ideas but there's there's nothing about the political moment that we're in right now that prevents it and you know as my last note on this is just like you know we crapped on bernie a lot but like he did that he had big transformative ideas sure he didn't back him up as much as we would have liked him to but he had big transformative ideas and i think we gotta give him credit for that yeah that's fair i think that's fair um well i would like to encourage other candidates to do that give us a little more detail than bernie did but, yes but uh Let's talk about the big things. Let's let's tackle the big issues. I think we've been waiting way too long. I agree. Um, but with that, I think we're going to leave this episode there. Um, it's good to good to do this next to you again. Yeah, yeah. Back in the same room, I can look at you when I'm talking to you. It's great. Um, but with that, we will leave this one there, and we will talk to you next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.